You probably don't even hear it when it happens, right? Hey, friends. You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. The final leg. Here we are. Here we go. Soprano home movies. Speaking of which, I made a few of my own over the past couple weeks, taking my older kid skiing a lot and documenting his improvement. And I'll tell you, it's one of life's gifts, being able to ski with him, and I look forward to many more chairlift rides in the future. The Little Things. This episode was written by Diane Frolov, Andrew Schneider, David Chase, and Matthew Weiner. It was directed by Tim Van Patten and originally aired April 8th, 2007. It was shot in July, though. HBO synopsis. After a close call at home, Tony and Carmela head to the Adirondacks for a weekend with Bobby and Janice. Season 6, Part 2, Episode 13. Tricky nomenclature to avoid having to give the actors new season pay bumps. What sick fuck? Whereas T's got his mink, HBO's got a whole roster of them. This is an episode that, to my mind, is a little reminiscent of college back in season one, in that both frame us with Tony off the reservation. New environment. Here, Lake Oscawana means cold running water. We open on a flashback to 2004. Another break with convention. We're in season five. Tony and Johnny outside Johnny's house. Back when it was still his. All due respect. We're on Tony's line. Let's not go backwards. The show seizing every opportunity to reveal its self-awareness. Recall, Tony sees two feds. Bolts. Imagine had their bodies been flipped. Tony standing where Johnny was and vice versa. The fucking luck on this guy. As T runs, we get a new cut to a teenager looking out the window at the action. A MacGuffin, 30 seconds into the episode. The choice to zoom in. The show's almost kind of making fun of itself, adhering to a TV moment. Also, Kid kind of looks like a young Tony, through the lens of what we've seen in the show, of course. Anyway, he watches on as T throws his gun into the snow and falls over as he flees. Man down. Think that's a new frame, too. Wonder if they shot that back in season five and it landed on the cutting room floor back then. Later that night, the boy goes outside and tracks down the gun with a Fisher-Price kids-looking flashlight almost. Nice touch. 
He immediately discharges the weapon and hop, skips, and jumps over a few rites of passage. Dogs start barking on cue, but no clamor of adults. Just another night in suburban New Jersey. Guarantee you one thing, though. If Charmaine heard that, she would have been outside in 0.2 seconds, a la luxury lounge. No firing in the borough limits. Final note on this scene, there's a seal on the grip of the gun that I wondered about. It's Beretta's Trident logo, the three arrows and circles. First discovered by Mr. Beretta himself in a villa with the words Dare and Broca above it, meaning hit the target. Cut to 2007 by way of a star ledger plunking down on the Soprano driveway. We get this final season's variation of our season premiere callback. The paper lets us know the 2007 budget passed, that the state averted a shutdown. Something recall Tony was unable to do with his uncle. And that hybrid car sales are through the roof, which is interesting now. Nice time capsule moment, some 14 years later, and we're still not really quite there in terms of all electric vehicles. Unless, of course, you're Tesla or one of its shareholders. The camera lifts off the paper to reveal the Soprano house basking in a crisp, clear morning. The first of many magic moments this episode. We see an alarm clock, 5.59 a.m. As it turns to 6, we hear bangs. T's fast asleep, Carmela pops up, then a doorbell. Note, a lot of bells this episode. Doors, boats, and a clear through line to the series finale. There's a bell in the diner of that episode, too. What about 6 a.m., I wondered? Turns out I wasn't the only one. Learned that it's fairly common. Even has a name, the 6 o'clock knock. The early time exists for a couple of reasons. One, fairly obviously, it's the best chance to catch the culprit at home. Two, interestingly, is for a psychological advantage. A perp walk in a bathrobe is never a good look, even if you're Tony. Being unprepared puts the culprit in off-kilter or askew footing, potentially leading to mistakes and the inability to calculate all the permutations at internet speed to put retaliatory safeguards in place. Carmela asks, is this it? Wow. For them? For us? Tony going to spend the whole season behind bars and on some kind of trial? Definitely recall the thought crossing my mind the first time through. T hops out of bed, takes a peek through the window. Cops everywhere, outside. More doorbells. Part of Tony's calm is you feeling he's more concerned about those guys scaring away any nest of ducks that might have made a home back there. He heads down, robe on. Nice contrast here. Usually moments with his robe in the morning are peaceful and pensive, at least for a time. Carmela follows behind with more urgency, ready to throw down. 
Then Meadow pops out. Note wearing Carmella blue. She's home. Back from California. Whatever happened there? T opens the door to a detective Gaudioso, Essex County. First a Grasso, now a Gaudioso? Note the sweat on his mustache. He's nervous. Felt that same sweat when I interviewed Terrence Winter. He's arresting a notorious local legend. One of his own. Whereas Tony certainly might categorize him more as a wonderbred wop. He's smug. Gives Carmelo the short shrift. He's just there to arrest Tony on account of an illegal firearm with hollow point ammunition. Tony's past, it seems, has come back to haunt him. Hollow points, of course, are bullets that cause considerably more damage than their pointier counterparts due to a mushrooming effect on impact, which is cute because Tony asks for more stuffed mushrooms later. Possession alone can be a crime in New Jersey. And while hollow points aren't outright banned in the state, collectors and law enforcement are allowed, private citizens that have them must be permitted and can only use them in places like firing ranges. Violation of these laws can put you in the can for 18 months. True story. I wrote a spec script called Hollow Point after I saw this episode years ago. It was about a retired hitman who takes one last hit to pay his kids college tuition. The twist was that the target was the dean of the university who was embroiled in some high-stakes fraud involving the university's endowment. Sad to say, or probably predictably, died on the vine. Tony asks where the FBI is. Took that as, aren't I worthy at least of the FBI rather than a rookie beat cop like you? Also, something that'll come back to bite him a bit later. Be careful what you wish for, and all that. Meadow asks to see a warrant. Note the guy next to Gaudioso was holding it up the whole time. But she takes it to examine it carefully. This isn't training day. Still on the fence about medicine and law, using every opportunity to test the waters, as she should. Then, note the close-up on Tony's hands as they cuff him. He flips off Gaudioso. Something I think he's done once or twice before. There's a level of dexterity there that suggests it's not his first rodeo. He's smiling, almost indifferent. Not giving any of these guys satisfaction. He's bigger than any one Essex County charge. Then we get a shot from behind of Tony walking down the driveway like many seasons before. Only this time, it's a perp walk. The beginning of the end. Lots of nice approaches on Tony this episode. We get to examine him a lot, almost like a museum artifact, recognizing we only have eight or so more hours with the guy. Carm notices the Cusamanos outside, walking their dog, likely not incidental, but rather by design, to gawk, to revel 
She shouts out to the good doc to explain that T has a medical condition. Crickets. The neighbor who waves hello and pulls up your trash cans every now and then, but sits idly by as soon as you're in a pinch. Chase's long-running gag, even before Donald Glover. This is America. Those property line tree disputes or view curtailments die hard. The cop car turns the corner and heads off as we cut to AJ asleep in the back of a car. Generations, father to son. I thought that was an interesting cut. The interconnectedness and continuity of past and present. But that's as far as it goes here. Oh, AJ's got a chin strap beard going like Craig David or Andy Samberg and Justin Timberlake in their SNL skits, Band of Brothers. His hair is also spiky and gelled, like Guy Fieri or something. He's got an earring. Looks like Blanca changed him in more ways than one. Note, he's got a Beansies pizza shirt on. A career change, too. From the looks of it, his construction days are over. Talk about an adolescent arc. Blockbuster to construction to a pizza joint. But hey, at least he's working. Evolving. Meadow's driving. Carmela's riding shotgun. She gets a call. It's Janice, wondering about whether they're coming up to the lake for T's birthday. Indicating for the first time that about eight months have elapsed since Kaisha. T's birthday, of course, is August 22nd. The same day as David Chase's. There's a bit of a discrepancy there as the internet says T's birthday is August 24th. But a frame of Tony's driver's license in another toothpick reads 822. Be that as it may, Carm explains the situation. Jan kicks Bobby up off the couch and is more or less unmoved by the arrest. It's just a gun. Even with hollow point bullets, he'll still make bail. A key statement, actually can't be overstated. Even a hardened leader of a criminal enterprise has certain privileges, especially if he can afford a good lawyer, one that would deem someone of a different race or lesser stature a flight risk, something that Blanca questions momentarily. Love that Chase incorporated that dichotomy front and center. And in The Sopranos' kitchen, of all places. Jan really wants them there, at the lake, that is. Why? A humble brag? To curry favor with Tony so he gives Bobby a bump? A little bit of both? But wait. Rewind to the there. When the fuck did they get a lake house? We'll learn how in a sec, but suffice it to say that the bygone Bacalas made some speculative real estate plays back in their day that seemed to have worked out. Carm says she's not sure about the trip up either way. But she should take her own advice. More is lost by indecision than wrong decision. 
Jan says we'll let him know we're with him. Probably in the least sincere way possible. Ever since back during his shooting, you never really got the sense she was thrilled he pulled through. She was almost as ironic as Morrissey. Then, as here, too. Since this episode features karaoke, Brother in a coma, I know. Brother in a coma, I know, I know, it's really serious. She doesn't tell Bobby what happened or show any kind of concern, really. Just, if you have any hollow point bullets in anything, take them out today. But the guy can barely get off the couch, let alone process. Back in the car, AJ got clothes for tea with stains on them. Some great symmetry to a funny connection to AJ and Staines with Blanca coming up in a bit. Carmela lets him have it. From one season to the next, despite outward appearances, some things will never change. Meadow wonders about the audacity of that show of force. Was it all about humiliating Dad? The six o'clock knock certainly validates some of that. But I think it's also about advancing one's career, whether the case goes anywhere or not. Giuliani famously trotted out Wall Street types, which later catalyzed his bid for mayor. Whatever happened there? Cut to Tony being let into a holding cell. He's out of his robe and in a suit. Didn't spot those tomato stains Carmela spoke of, though. He looks around for a place to sit, sizes up the environment, the people, maybe a familiar face. Certainly a recognition that any stripes earned on the outside are meaningless where he is in the present moment. He finds a place for himself and sits down. Processes. As we see a guy over his shoulder squat down to take a shit. That guy's agonizing over that shit like Gigi Chestone over here. Cut to Mink and T before a judge. Mink is laying into the 16-year-old punk who was found with a bag of coke and a gun and claims he saw T throw it down. Not yesterday. Not yesterday. Like Allen Iverson. Not practice. But over two years ago. Judge Paul Wurrenow considers this. Perhaps also worrying about himself, contemplating his own career as a future federal judge, maybe. As Svetlana beautifully reminded us, people are people. And from court, we cut to a bar at the Brooklyn Social Club. A welcome home sign. The Brooklyn crew, Jerry, Butch, Phil, Albie, and a new guy, Coco. Note, the camera lingers on him a couple times, but not much else yet. But just the lingers enough, as we'll see down the stretch here. Show, don't tell. 
The camera tells you everything you need to know. The shindig is for Phil. He's out of the hospital. Recall, of course, his heart troubles in Kaisha. But not exactly in a every day is a gift mode like Tony. Not at first, at least. Fucking empty compliments. I had major fucking coronary disease. Says he broke his guts on a recumbent bike in Florida. Evidently, he was convalescing there. To which I wondered, isn't the point of a recumbent bike, in part, so that you don't break your guts? But Jerry's serious. Would I shit you? You're my favorite turd. Nice reference to Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. 1987, a film where the artwork says as much about the characters in the film as the ones in this show. Born to kill. Well, with the exception of Bobby, of course, as we'll see. Albie wonders why he didn't get a real bike and ride around outside so he could people watch, scout the talent, and whatnot. Phil reminds everyone he's 66 years old and tells Albie that fat fuck to get a bike himself. His tenor turns from Grouch to Groucho. Also, Phil, in that moment, revealing the Peloton instructor I need in my life. Phil laughs as he looks up and sees a picture of Johnny Sack, then Buzzkill. Laugh track abruptly stops. Guy's reminded he's answerable to a fucking disgrace. For a couple, three reasons. Recall he cried at his daughter's wedding upon arrest. And then he admitted the existence of this thing of ours before a judge. Fucking nauseating. Just then, another guy is introduced to us. Doc. Faustino Doc Santoro. Comes in singing like he's Sinatra, remixing the girl from Ipanema to... Guy from Sheepshead Bay greets Phil, then quickly exits stage left for a drink. The rest of the gang isn't enchanted with him. He's met with a this fucking guy as soon as he walks off. Camera cuts to show him gripping and grinning with the others in the room. Is this guy mounting a primary run against Phil in the next boss election cycle? I know, bad political joke. But seriously, there isn't a real boss yet. And he looks to want to play the part. And we can see factions forming. Will he, true to his namesake, strike a Faustian bargain of some sort to accrue power? Is that his arc? Feels like it. Let's see. Phil, unbothered for now, says he's back to enjoy grandchildren, his home, and that's about it. Then shows Jerry some affection as he listens intently. This affection for Jerry, some of it no doubt coming from the cup of love he had for his brother, Billy. Let's pay attention to that, too, going forward. He looks to be the future of the party. The Hair apparent. One national convention speech away from ascending to the heights of Sheepshead Bay. 
I should put a beat to that verse. Might be something there. Note the music playing in the background. Trouble in Paradise by the Crests. Pretty much confirms everything we need to know looking ahead. The Crests are probably most famous for their song, 16 Candles. And cool story. They were discovered singing in the New York City subway. Hearing stuff like that never gets old. Doc shouts over from across the room. The manners on this guy. Pork chop out in Jersey got pinched. Then Butch seizes the moment for himself. Drops a gat in a field somewhere three fucking years ago. There's three again. Telling Phil, I'm the raven in this scenario. Not Doc. Also, I always thought the origin of gat would be more thoughtful than gatling. But no, it's just that. Coco speaks. Jersey, fucking farmers, I don't know. <laughs> Us versus them crystallizing once again. Going all the way back to Carmine Sr.'s view that they're a glorified crew. Some guy makes a bad joke. Phil throws him a look. Guy kind of looks like Junior, only younger. Well, that's because the real-life actor is Uncle Junior's son, Dominic Canessi Jr. But this character's nowhere near as smart. Perhaps a Brooklyn version of Ercole. Phil looks at him, then down at his drink, as we cut to Essex County Prosecutor Peter Asinapura on TV, giving a full-throated admonishment of Tony Soprano. Seizing the day like dead poet society. AJ and Meadow are on the couch, preoccupied with other things as their dad's perp walk is shown. Just another day in suburban New Jersey for these guys, right? Modern-day analog to this might be them each doing their own version of doom-scrolling. AJ's with Hector, showing him his new tattoo on his arm that says Blanca. As the universe collectively eye rolls. Carmela overhears the news. Disgusted from the kitchen, she screams to have the TV turned off. There's a spread of food for everyone. Sil, Carlo, Blanca. Bunch of more guys come in through the front door. Patsy, Polly, who then reveal Tony. Polly says, take the yellow ribbons down. Our boys come home. Yellow ribbons have numerous meanings, primarily pertaining, of course, to the military. In Italy, the yellow ribbon is worn to support prisoners of war. A nice nod to Tony, perhaps, who was just a prisoner himself, albeit of a different kind of war. They let him out already? A cultural foot in the mouth. Tony Meadow and Carmela throw a look. But once again, AJ swoops in to save her. Hands them over a Gary Fisher bike in the form of language. In our neighborhood, people don't get out right away. Wait a second. His neighborhood now? He move out too? Tony asks where Christopher is. Nobody knows anything. Tony's disappointed. Just the look. The fact that he's not there, but mentioned, is telling. 
feels like that ship has sailed. A carryover from Kaisha. Bobby calls, asks if T wants him to come down. Well played. Asks why Tony's on the fence about the weekend. T says he's not into sitting around and chewing the fat. Small talk. My initial thought on the Clubhouse app until I tried it, actually. Lately now, it's where I've been spending all my free time. Bobby's view is revealed, the first of many this episode. And I, like so many of you, have dreamt of that view ever since. Even tracked the real estate market there for years. Mostly just for kicks. But I'm just one Reddit stock run away from plunking down. He brings up a meeting with the Canadians, some meat on the bone for us to look forward to, and then doubles down, encourages T to come. Jen and Bobby have an agenda? Always in the back of the mind, is all. T looks at the room, locks on Hector, sucking a pacifier way past the time he's supposed to. What? Too judgmental? Then says, it may not be such a bad idea. On bad idea, we cut to Castleman, the federal prosecutor, remember? And real-life consultant on such matters to the show. He walks into Essex County Prosecutor Asinapura's office with a look that says it all. Essex County chasing a cheap headline was a bad idea in its own right. Can you really not be aware we've been building a RICO case against Tony Soprano for five fucking years? Then you blow this popcorn fart. A moment of getting chopped down to size worthy of Lorraine Caluzzo. Men are talking here. Now, would a state case on a charge bar a federal case on the same? One part of a larger RICO case? In general, no. Double jeopardy doesn't apply to RICO. Many courts have ruled that the government can reuse evidence from other trials to prove guilt in a second trial involving a racketeering scheme. The Supreme Court has more or less left it to Congress and the states to override the Double Jeopardy Clause based on the legislative intent of the laws on the books. So Castleman doesn't lose any ammunition necessarily. But that doesn't mean there isn't a pecking order. And to Castleman, Asinapura, like Christopher, is someone who waits in the car. Slow fade to Tony and Carm on the road up north. Funk number 49 by the James Gang is playing loudly. Now, my version of the James Gang, not surprisingly, refers to LeBron's. But interestingly, there's a nexus to the one from the show. Both hail from Cleveland. Carmela's fidgeting with the contents of her purse. Lake House or not, she's bringing parts of New Jersey with her. Everywhere she goes, actually. Remember Paris? 
She's freaked out about her spec house, low bars on the phone, afraid she'll miss a communication with the realtor. Says the caravan for her house is Tuesday and the gas is still off. A caravan is a real estate term of art. It's when other agents are invited to tour a handful of different homes that are on the market. Tony gets a call, says his phone works, takes it. Anything to get out of that rat race shit with her. Besides, a slow sale might end up costing him more money. Cost basis. Remember? It's Mink on the line, and he's brief. Essex County dropped the charges. Mink attributes it to his theory of it being a bullshit case. Could have been Santa Claus, he says. I doubt he detected the larger forces at play. Castleman. But hard to tell. He's proven to be quite effective for Tony throughout the series. Carm is relieved. Didn't want this hanging over his birthday. Or her life, for that matter. T wants to stop being reminded that it's his birthday. But she says if she does that, he'll be mad and say they didn't make a fuss. No good deed, as Hugh might cry out if he were in the car. Next, a great wide shot using the rule of thirds of them ripping up the road to the soundtrack of the James Gang. And we cut to the cabin on the lake. Lake Oscawana, just east of West Point. That's the real lake. And those rock formations we'll see throughout are called goose rocks. Kind of fitting. And the house, interestingly, belonged to the late Roy Scheider of Jaws fame. Bobby's in a tank and disproportionately short shorts. The show emasculating him every chance it gets. But interesting contrast given how his character arc evolves just in the course of one episode. Carm and Tony show up. And Carm says she's had to pee since Glenn's Falls. Already multiple references to piss and shit. Read that as the fucking regularness of life. For any basketball heads out there, Glens Falls is the former home of Jimmer Fredette and one-time pro wrestler, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Tony takes one look at Bobby and can't help himself. National Lampoon's Vacation. Of course, referring to the Chevy Chase movie. Then Tony takes in the view of the surroundings. The hum, the way the water's moving, left to right. Something about the motion and current of the water this episode. It's beautiful, but suspicious. And the constant cuts to it. Very Sopranos. Steeping us in the sense of place. It's orchestral. Inside, Carm's loving on Nika. Wearing the same dress as Mommy. Says hello to Mercedes, the nanny. She's kind of short ask me. Tony comes in, loves on Nika a little too. After calling her Murgatroyd, a reference to Heavens to Murgatroyd, popularized by the cartoon character Snagglepuss, a regular on the Yogi Bear show in the 1960s. 
quite possibly a show a younger T watched. Jan offers food. Carm asks for a Pellegrino. Tony makes jokes, points to a mounted deer head. He'll pass. He's stuffed. Jan asks if ShopRite sparkling will do. And Carm says sure. She puts a finger in her mouth and gags. In her mind, of course. But Jan, acting as if it's the haves and the have-nots over here. As she serves guests in her fucking lake house. Would she serve that shit to the Salernos? Speaking of shit, Tony lets Bobby know that's what the lawn looks like. If Frank Sinatra were coming over here to celebrate his birthday with you, would you leave the lawn like that? Gets you wondering about the comparison. Also reminds me of the Rat Pack episode. The gift from Mazarone. Janice doesn't skip a beat. He has enough with the lawn at the new house since someone let the gardener go. Says she's joking and how grateful they are. But she can barely say the words. And why even joke about shit like that in the first place after what Tony did? She thrives on the conflict. And if you know someone like that, especially in your own family, you'd rather eat stale egg salad than engage. She's super tan, by the way, Jan. Summer's been good to her. Bobby goes to grab them some beers. The regularness of life about to ensue. Or, cut to Tony firing an assault rifle at a tree. This just after getting arrested on a weapons charge. 800 rounds, Bobby says. Panther-fluted barrel. DPMS Panther is another firearm brand. The gun itself is a customized Armalite AR-10 A4C carbine assault rifle, a precursor to the M16, a military favorite. But who am I, Charlton Heston now? A great exchange. Tony asks if it's what he used to get the deer. I wouldn't use a firearm like this on a deer. It's unsportsmanlike. Love the way he says that. Tony says fine. A 30 ought 6 then. The 30 refers to the caliber of the bullet in inches. And the 6 refers to the year the cartridge was adopted, 1906. It was the U.S. Army's ammo cartridge of choice for over 50 years. Bobby says au contraire. He's been using a bow and arrow exclusively the last two seasons. Ever since Pine Barrens. Imagine if he'd had those when tracking the Russian. Bobby's got a hobby as quantifiably durable as railroading. Killing innocent creatures. Kind of surprised Tony wasn't put off by that. Bobby says the bow and arrow levels the playing field. But Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant might beg to differ. What he did with the bear, that's leveling the playing field. Bobby says the AR-10 is his gift to T for his birthday. Don't say shit to Carmella. Tony fires off a round again, showing us the degree of vertical recoil as we cut to later that afternoon. 
Overcast skies over the lake. Wide shot of the gang on the dock. Bobby fanning himself. Then the camera trains on a woody boat. Such a great cut. Love it so much. Rocking against the dock. Can you say Fredo Corleone? It even says Tahoe on the back of it. A friend of mine's dad had a woody on Lake Tahoe, and going out on it was one of the highlights of my life growing up. The Merkmaid, it was called. Carmela mentions how they, too, almost got a summer place. Whitecaps. She asks if Tony remembers. But he changes the subject. Asks for more stuffed mushrooms. He remembers all right. And we do, too. You think he was thinking of Furio right there? You think she was? Carmela doesn't show it. You see her face for a sec. Not a fucking thing. Rolls off her back. Played as if it wasn't a thinly veiled dig. Just incredible how she commands equal share of that camera, even next to Tony. Effortless. Then, Bobby explains this place was his dad's. The Terminator. Stone-cold assassin with good taste. Old man Bacala bought it because it was close to Canada, and they had ties there to Montreal. Old man Bacala's father came into America through Montreal. Illegally. Carmela asks, he wasn't Ellis Island, your grandfather? Is that a stain now? Bobby says, nah, he got caught up in some shit on the other side. Anti-government shit. Had a police record as a result. Then Bobby says, they ought to build a wall now, though. Oh, boy. He was early on that talking point. Funny thing about some immigrants, including ones in my own family. Once they're here, America, that is. They feel entitled to believe others should be kept out. A paradox of assimilation. Carmelo agrees with Bobby. Says, Amen. <laughs> this as they cut to Mercedes and Nika. We're in. Fuck everybody else. This from a guy whose family entered, again, illegally. Rich. And such a beautiful way to incorporate that commentary in an otherwise benign lakeside conversation. The other two kids, we learn, are off someplace else, but will be back soon. Camp, I'd imagine. Recall Bobby Jr. couldn't stand to watch a Giants game on the couch with his dad. An extended stay cooped up at a lake house in the summer? Forget about it. At which point, curiously, Jan says she's glad. Glad for her relationships. Even though a large chunk of her family isn't even there. Back with her family after all these years, she says. What's she talking about all these years? Also, a perfect opportunity for Tony to wonder what Harpo's up to this summer. Recall the end of cold cuts. Jan turns to Tony. 
who would have thought we have the kind of relationship we have now? Says he gets the credit. He really changed. To which T says, so it had to be me who changed. She says she meant it as a compliment. He's been a different guy ever since the shooting. They look out over the water, fish jumping. Tony's stewing, misses it. Nice metaphor, I thought. Nothing's really changed. He's still the same guy trapped in his own head, looking over his shoulder. Until he's not. I'm different how? How am I different? That felt like a nod to Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. Janice resists the temptation to answer. Silence all around. Tony notices Nika playing, blowing bubbles, calms down. Asks Carm to tell the story about the pool. Foreshadowing their own pool, perhaps. Pradeep, their pharmacist. I got an uncle named Pradeep, by the way. If you have any Indian blood, there's always one on every family tree. Anyway, this Pradeep was at a pool party. All the kids were playing in the water, adults all around, having drinks, barbecuing, possibly even bungraing. The three-year-old child managed to fall into the pool. Nobody noticed until someone found him face down in the water. There's three again, by the way. Why bring that up? To get at Janice somehow? Or just merely conversation? Chewing the fat. Did something similar happen when they were younger? Also interesting in light of Jan's reaction to Nika being in the water later. Tony's not done. Doubles down. Brain dead. Says he can't get the story out of his mind. I don't know why, he says. A kid face down in a pool. Tony's stuck on it. Put it in your back pocket for later. Cut to an exterior shot of the house at night. Then a slow fade to early the next morning on the lake. Those rocks jutting out of the water on full display. Clearly foreshadowing in my what sick fuck mind. A site for future or impending violence or danger. Turning that theory on its head, as David Chase is so good at doing, inside, Tony's getting a blowy. Happy birthday, T. Then, cut to Tony and Bobby out on the water. Bobby's driving his Chris Craft boat, an American boat manufacturer. Fishing poles in the back, Bobby with a shit-eating grin. Tony holding what's left of a six-pack, Bobby doing turns, showing what that puppy's capable of. Inside the house, Carm's on the phone, letting AJ know it's supposed to rain so to make sure the cellar windows are closed. Why were they open in the first place? Does Tony know? Parabolics? AJ, we see, is sleeping in his parents' bed. What the fuck? He's short with her. Easy big fella. She says, interesting phraseology given what we see with Blanca here. 
wine and beer bottles on Carmela's nightstand. Interesting, to me at least, that he slept on Carmela's side of the bed, whereas Blanca slept on Tony's side. Don't know what to make of that other than it stood out. He lies about being at work. That shit would never fly today. Tracking iPhones and Nest cameras and whatnot. Blanca comes out of the tub, which is fantastic, she says. Note her towel is what we've referred to many times as Carmela Blue. Oedipus over here. As they kiss, we see smoke rising from an ashtray and an equal amount of libations on her side of the bed, too. Then another bell rings, and she says there's everybody. AG reminds her they can't forget to wash the sheets. A disturbing moment, especially now that I'm a parent. Why he couldn't have done what he did in his own room, we'll never know. He answers the door and friends start trickling in. One calls him Anthony Jeroboam Soprano. Wait, is that what the J in AJ stands for? Thought it was John. Now, Jeroboam was the first king of Israel. He had a 22 year run at king. And the name roughly translates to pleads the people's cause. Cut back to Carm and Jan in the lake house kitchen. Carm wonders to her if Tony was hitting the hooch a little at lunch. Shitty booze. Wonders if he's feeling his age. What's the correlation between shitty booze and age? Shouldn't it be the opposite? Jan turns it around on herself, naturally, become a bit of a pattern this episode especially. What do you think it's like for me? Note the momentary look Carmela gives her before Jan takes the floor. She says he used to do whatever she said when they were kids. Tippy, their dog, remember? Fran Felstein? Tony ate one of his bones because Jan said it was a cookie. They laugh. Then Jan brings up their ma. Her therapist, Sandy, said in such a way that indicates Carmela knows her, I thought, says Livia was a splitter. She'd pit the kids against each other. To toughen us up, I guess. Her theory. Karma's silent. Working her Seamless kitchen magic. In psychology, splitting generally is considered a defense mechanism. Another term for it is all or none thinking. People who are splitters see things as either all good or all bad, no in between. The latter obviously leading to patterns of strained and unstable relationships. Exhibit A The Sopranos. Jan says she couldn't help but overhear her on the phone with AJ. Eggshells with kids these days today. Carm says they're almost through that phase. Thank God. I'm actually kind of curious when it officially starts, that behavioral blackmail. After a long pause, Jan says, you're good with them. Wagging her finger. The foremost authority on the matter. Anybody seen Harpo? Or is it Hal now? Carm starts to talk about him going back to college and sleeping over at Blanca's. 
not something most parents would see as successful maneuvers, but in Soprano land, he's actually faring pretty well compared to some of the youths that swam in those waters from seasons past and present, actually. Jackie Jr., Eric Scatino, Vito Jr. Wait for it. But Jan cuts right back to Ma. Brings up therapist Sandy again. Says that when they were babies, everything was fine. But Ma couldn't live with her kids getting older and separating from her. Talking and expressing ideas. That's when the trouble started. It was about control. Reminds me of growing up when things were bad, my mom would frantically clean the kitchen. Something, sadly, I've adopted in my own life. Destroying or creating chaos around the things that you're losing grasp of is one way to deal with the lack of control. Even though the overall damage is orders of magnitude greater. Carmela looks on, thinking in part about her own situation. She's silent, but kind of clearly over it. Long beat. Jan takes the hint, kind of. Holds up a bottle of white wine. The perfect reset. Cut to a long shot of Tony and Bobby on the boat. Tony's saying how Bobby's been a top performer for some time now. They're fishing. Another long beat. You get older, you think about things. Bobby says they're both still young, world's still in front of them. Oh, my estimate historically, 80% of the time it ends up in the can like Johnny Sack or on the embalming table of Cozzarelli's. Don't even say it. Recall the mortuary of choice for the Soprano family. Then, to my mind, a non sequitur. No risk, no reward. What's he getting at there? Better to take a risk for the chance to win big at best, clipped at worst? Or be mediocre and still end up in the can? I think this was Tony's version of get rich or die trying. Then, quick cut to Lakeside. Interesting choice to cut to Carm being pensive midstream on this conversation Tony's having. Carm and Jan are just relaxing out by the water. We get that shot of the water again. The movement of it. The color of it. The sound. The tone of it. Hinting at something. Hinting at nothing but not quite allowing us to take it in the way you're supposed to. We're on our heels. Back on Tony and Bobby. Bobby's talking about their line of work, how death is always looming. Then a line that would have Aristotle and Plato debating over it, were they around to hear it, like us. You probably don't even hear it when it happens, right? Tony diffuses that bomb, deadpans immediately. Ask your friend in there, on the wall, 
referring, of course, to the deer. Which is interesting in and of itself, too, because how do we envision a deer right before they die? There's an entire expression for it. Deer in headlights. You probably don't even hear it when it happens. Then, T brings up the fact that Bobby never popped his cherry in the killing another man regard. Uses the finger trigger gesture for added emphasis. A precursor to run the jewels over here. Tony's flip from pensive to menace is haunting. He's almost goading. Giving you something, but wait. There's an initiation fee. An entrance fee. If I'm going to give you a bump, you got to clip somebody. This brother-in-law shit ain't enough. Bobby says no and looks away. And Tony, yet your old man was the fucking Terminator. Bobby explains his pop never wanted it for him. What pop does? We're all a bunch of Don Corleones in that regard when you think about it. He says that Terminator wished, even for himself, that he could just stay in the shop and just cut hair. A Terminator and a barber. Clipped, as it pertains to Bacala Sr., it seems, had double meaning. A gentleman and a scholar. T says he'd rather he shot him than cut his hair. Not that there's much to cut. And if he was a barber, he'd have to have a license. So he couldn't be that bad. Personally, I'd be more concerned about getting coughed on excessively. Next, a quick wide shot to show the boat again from afar. Like somebody's watching. Like somebody in the diner, in the corner, in Dartford. Or the restaurant up by Uncle Pat's. Before cutting right back in tight, T says there's somebody he's been bringing along to insulate himself from the stuff that could bring down a boss. But now, there's diverging agendas. Also read that as initials for D.A. He's talking about Chris. Interesting, though, with all his mistakes and transgressions and relapses, the one thing that put him on the wrong side of the ledger was hooking up with a woman Tony had shelved, as he describes it. Put in his pantry of love. I'd like to think it was the straw that broke the camel's back, but we get a real fresh look at or reminder of Tony's psyche this episode. If he can't let go of the fact he lost a drunken bar fight, imagine how his brain must be short-circuiting over the fact that his turkey neck of a nephew scored where he was unsuccessful. Bobby says he's sorry to hear that, playing his cards right ever since the initial phone call to come to the lake. There's some genuineness there, but also, I can't ever forget how we're introduced to him back in season two. The camera orbit. Calling T a fat fuck and spitting as he drove off. Actually positioning him early on as a potential antagonist 
to Tony. There's always been an asterisk on his character because of that. A dark horse, come from behind kind of guy. Or character arc. Et tu brute. Call it what you want. He's been angling in his own way since he endeared himself to Junior. And credit to him to have climbed this far, having never clipped someone. T changes the subject, brings up a Newark facilities manager, says he's going to set them up to do all the window replacements in the projects, wants Bobby to oversee it, work it. Bobby, pulling another one out of the Henry Kissinger School of Diplomacy Night School, I'm honored just to be considered. Tony wraps it up. Then we'll see what happens after that. Long term. Meaning, Bobby's not his guy. Not yet. Bobby's his plan B. Then, a great shot of them from just outside the boat. Always wondered about the lens choice on that for some reason. I learned that the shot was a bit of an illusion as they were much closer to the land than the frame let on. Also, note the number three on the front of the boat. Too much. Right next to the Chris Craft decal. Cut to dinner outside, specifically an L cut, if you're fucking Cecil B. DeMille over here. Everyone's singing happy birthday to T. Presence time. T says he didn't want any, just a few kind words. They all say it in chorus. They've all heard it before. Jan says that was dad's line every year. And Bobby answers, he gets the joke. Wait, that was a joke? What? Just false modesty? Or is there really no joke? Bobby's just pretending to be in on it. To save face. First gift. Soprano home movies. From Jan. She had all the Super 8s from when they were kids transferred. That's a film format. 8mm. It was popular in the 60s. The 8 refers to the actual width of the film strip. I believe that the Zapruder film documenting the JFK assassination was shot on 8mm to tie back to that. Carmela sneaks off. Meanwhile, Tony's touched. It's really very thoughtful. Carm reappears with a golf bag full of clubs. Oh, look at these. Oh, this tailor-made. Wow. That should have been the tailor-made commercial from tailor-made the moment it aired. Tony reads a beautiful sentiment from Carm. Everybody toasts. Tony gives a little speech about being in a place with everybody he loves. Couldn't ask for more. Hold that thought. Cut to later that night inside. Karaoke time. The lyric on the screen we see, but you can't come back and be the first in line. Nice nod to Tony complaining about Jan to Melfi. Remember the Cause I got the scars. Rant. Jan singing. You're obsolete, my baby. 
That's from Out of Time by The Stones on the Aftermath album. Fitting title for this final season. Also, for an episode with Tony's birthday. As the opening line of the album is, what a drag it is getting old. Then, smash cut to Carm, singing Love Hurts by the Everly Brothers from 1960. Out of key, but accurate. That's what love sounds like when it goes off the rails. Then cut to even later that night, the passage of time through edits. Pan shot of the kitchen, vodka, gin, beer, cake, great color palette of organized chaos, down to the spice rack. There's an apple, maybe it's a peach, and a half avocado in a bowl. Importantly, no sign of an orange. Oldies music, the song is Killer Joe by the Rocky Fellers, a band of four Filipino brothers. Two of the four still perform in a club today in Waikiki. A pan reveals the four of them playing Monopoly at the table. Not the Filipino brothers, but Tony, Carm, Bobby, and Jan. Swapping laughs. You want to start a family fight? There's David Chase's genius shining through. Play a game of Monopoly. Bobby in a Caribbean Joe shirt, going heavy on the grappa, ready to switch to Remy. Grappa, recall, is an Italian brandy. Tony rolls a six, gets community chest, has to pay a hospital fee of $100. Fitting, since he just got out of the hospital not too long ago. And likely a far cry from what the real hospital fee was, assuming that Barone insurance didn't cover all of it. Tony puts the money in the middle. Bobby's confused. Carm explains they play the free parking rule. Doesn't everybody? It's the only way to play, right? It's called community chest for a reason. But Bobby's not having it. Asks that she show him that in the rules. Again, these guys with the rules. Bobby fully mounts this horse and never looks back. You know, the Parker brothers took time to think this all out. Yeah, so did Lucky Luciano, so what of it? Now, even later that night, jazz standards. Dave Brubeck, is it? Take five? Which is fitting since that's exactly what T does in a second. Smoke in the air. Bobby lands on Marvin Gardens owned by Janice, with two houses. That's 360 simoleons, she says. A term for money evidently derived from Napoleon. Recall, Monopoly locations are based on actual New Jersey locations in and around Atlantic City. And Marvin Gardens is a neighborhood a little south of AC. Bobby throws the money at her, which she doesn't like. Hand it to me. There was something to that. Almost like an inside joke between the two of them. Then, a nice cut to Tony setting up his opportunity to really get under her skin. Tony grabs 500 from the bank thinking no one's looking. Jan sees it, 
says the word kiped, slang from the early 20th century, especially in the 60s. T imitates comedian W.C. Fields. Note, both Soprano siblings are the only ones rolling doubles here. Bobby can't handle it. You take a game of skill and you make it just about luck. Hmm. Is Monopoly a game of skill? It's certainly a little bit of both. But conventional wisdom characterizes it as mostly a game of luck. The skill involved is interpersonal and negotiation sophistication. I know, fucking Milton Bradley over here. T calls Bobby a fucking crybaby. Bobby's clearly agitated. How about I make up my own fucking rules? How about every time I land on one of my properties, I get $100? How about that? But what Bobby doesn't get is that there's making up the rules outright like that, and then there's established tradition that becomes law, something akin to the adverse possession doctrine in property law. T mocks the how about that, smashes his face, like Quavo smashed the rim in his music video for How About That. Bobby looks at him, mouth agape. There's those visions of early season two coming out. Jan buys a house on Ventnor. Jan buying a house is kind of funny show lore. Remember, she tried to stymie the sale of Livia's house so she could effectively adversely possess it herself. Then she gets Johnny Sack's house for pennies on the dollar and likely put up no money of her own. Nika comes down, hugs daddy, mini theme this episode, where an undercurrent of Nika's innocence forever being altered is hanging in the balance. Tony looking at her constantly throughout this episode makes me wonder if part of why he wanted Bobby to get in some wet work was to establish that taint on his family. Nika wants to say goodnight again, and T watches Jan play mom, bribing Nika with Laffy Taffy. Bobby isn't about that. We talked about this. Jan asks about the difference between bribery and positive reinforcement. T says it looked like a bribe to him. Then Jan takes off her mom coat. She ever really put it on. Baby's still in tow, by the way. You know what, Tony? But the fuck out. So, what's the difference? And which is it? Bribery is giving something before the desired behavior is demonstrated. Whereas reinforcement is reward after the desired behavior is demonstrated. Gonna get cute with semantics now, but if we're really going strictly off that, T was right. Jan straight up bribed Nika. Tony says he should tape her. Send it to Parents Magazine as she pours herself more wine to get back at her for recording him when they were kids. Brings up that past reveal in therapy that she taped him and hung it over his head for a whole month. Fucking extortion. Since we're parsing semantics and all, got me thinking about the nuance between blackmail and extortion. They're both similar crimes, but there's a distinction definitionally. 
Extortion is the use of coercion to obtain money, goods, or services from somebody. Blackmail is the use of threat to reveal embarrassing, incriminating, or socially damaging information to obtain money. Point being, what Jan did to Tony all those years ago feels a little more like blackmail. Just then, Carm spills her wine near Tony, but T doesn't lose his stride. The wine, though, acting as a buffer for yet another awkward moment at Casa Bacala, made me wonder what the symbolism of that spill was right in that moment. A proverbial spilling of the beans. Jan denies the bygone blackmail, but Carm doubles down. You fed him a milk bone, which is news to Tony. He probably still thinks it was a cookie. Jan once again drives this conversation over to Ma. Brings up an old story about mom and dad and the copa, as in Goodfellas copa. Tony stops her right there. Copa was the trigger word. Johnny Soprano's night there was much different, it seems, than Henry Hill's. She's talking about Ma's hair. T says it never happened and it's not for public consumption, drawing a clear line, it seems, between Bobby and everybody else at the table. Undeterred, Jan proceeds. Manhattan, Uncle June, his Gumad, Rosemarie. She's the one who told the story in the first place. Carmela with a look of utter longing to hear how this unfolds. Soprano Family Secrets. Soprano Home Movies, Part 2. Janice proceeds, says Livia was antagonizing Johnny. You know. And Johnny Boy takes out his gun and shoots her without thinking. Boom. Tony brushes his eyebrow. Jan. Fucking bullet went right through her beehive hairdo. I can't believe you never told me that story. Everybody laughs. Tony's cauldron is brewing. Jan wonders, what's the big deal? Because it makes us look like a fucking dysfunctional family. Tony looks to Carm, and don't you ever tell the kids that about their grandfather. Carm says, of course not, in such a way that suggests a classic Gilligan cut. Now, real quick, Johnny Boy knew what he was doing, right? He missed on purpose. Was just sending a message. Right? Also, I'm guessing her window was down. So the bullet flew right through. No mention of any broken windows. I'm like McNulty and Bunk reconnoitering the scene for a shell casing over here. Jan says it's her turn. But didn't she just go? Buy a house on Ventnor? Carm wonders about the specifics of the hair itself, powder burns, something I'd never heard of before this show. They're a type of burn caused by the discharged gas of a firearm. Only occurs if the shooting is at point-blank range. I feel like I'm Russell Crowe in Gladiator talking to the Praetorian in the beginning when that motherfucker's blade stuck. Jan says... No powder burns, but her hair? She had it bobbed the next day. Laughter ensues, but not Tony. 
The hilarity of her hair being bobbed the next day never quite landed for me. But the way Janice delivers it says bobbed is sufficient enough for a chuckle. But I feel a little like Bobby earlier, who said, I get the joke. Jan rolls, gets doubles, lands on boardwalk. She owns that too. You blue guys are doing. Bobby throws him a look, mouth full of grappa. From what little we've been able to decipher of this game, she looks to be dominating. She rolls again, wins second prize in a beauty contest. Go ahead, make your stupid joke. But he leaves it alone for a beat. Bobby says he thinks he'll buy a railroad. Guy hasn't even rolled yet. I'm so confused. He just invent a new rule? Then T, a German shepherd shaved ass won first prize. Real quick aside, just notice the color palette of this room in this light. Dante's Inferno over here. That joke actually makes Carmela lose it. Sort of shocked. But a lot of alcohol going around everywhere. Bobby pushed to the brink. You're talking about my wife. Tony and Stride, you married her. Bobby, this is my home. The way he says it. No more talking like that. The Sopranos, you go too far. Tony looks as that last one lands. But like he said earlier, no risk, no reward. Tony pulls back, apologizes, seemingly sincerely. The game continues. The undercurrent of take five is just too good. Tony starts singing under the boardwalk by the drifters under his breath. Then he modifies the lyrics slightly. Under the boardwalk, witty schlong and change my house. Under the... And that's as much as Bobby can take. He cracks T in the face. T falls to the ground. So does half the board game with him. They go at it. Broken windows. This scene was shot on location and in a rebuilt replica studio to accommodate Gandolfini's surgically repaired knee and the recovery that followed. T gets a couple of body shots. Bobby gets one too. Camera trains on it, actually. Right where his surgical wound was or thereabouts. Bobby doesn't relent. Kind of interesting. Adrenaline and the moment overtake all sort of rationalizing, contextualizing, realizing mistakes. They exchange awkward punches next to an old map of Italy. Always saw that as no doubt their ancestors rolling in their graves. T moves him from one proverbial rope to another. Bobby calls him a fuck. Stand down, Bobby. Carmela's finally seen enough, decides to intervene, jumps on T's back, but she's thrown to the floor, lands awkwardly on a table on the way down. Jan, meanwhile, just stands there with her mouth open. Almost like she's sensing an opportunity, but also the consequences at the same time. All in one look. Bobby strings together a final solid sequence, which results in Tony spilled all over the floor, 
atop stray monopoly paraphernalia. Ten count over, teased down for good, with a monopoly house lodged into an open wound on his face. A huge upset. Bobby's the victor. To the victor belongs the spoils, as he once said. That thought has come full circle for him, it would seem. Bobby, somewhat recognizing what he's done, bolts out the front door, likely thinking he's done for. That or he's grabbing his bow and arrow, you know, to keep it real sportsmanlike. Mercedes comes down, has a peek. What do we pay you for? Put her to bed! Jan runs out to Bobby, and Carm tends to tea. Outside, Bobby smashes into a tree, trying to flee the scene frantically. Wonder what's got him more twisted? The grappa or the specter of Tony's wrath? Then, a fantastic shot of a bloodied Tony being escorted by Carm to bed. The distance of the camera. Not too wide, but not up close either. Remember, we get to examine him this episode. The slow approach lets you absorb the cocktail of things that are happening in front of us. He's processing. We're processing. Nothing's reactionary. It's a slow burn. Note the blood pattern on his shirt resembles a Rorschach inkblot test. Just then, Jan and Bobby come in. Bobby immediately apologizes. Carm flicks the Monopoly house off T's cheek, and everybody agrees it's time for bed. In a private moment, Jan asks Bobby what the fuck he was thinking. You're my wife. He insulted you. Perfectly logical. Jan lets him know, though, that she can take care of herself. He might not know that, even though we do. Exhibit Richie. She says he's the head of the family. You think he's just going to wake up tomorrow and forget about this? And therein lies the stickiness of the show. In any other world, or most worlds, this incident is over. Water under the bridge. But here, there's a potpourri of possibility. Tony can do everything or absolutely nothing. It can happen fast or it can take an entire season arc. Over in the other room, Carm ices Tony, who's taken over the whole bed. She tries to move him over, get him undressed, but he slaps her away. She looks down at him the way she looks down at him. The blouse she's wearing. Vertical stripes. A prisoner in this life. In this marriage. But content within the confines for once. She slinks off to a bunk bed and crashes. No sheets. No blankets. No problem. Fade to black. Early the next morning. Tony's coughing in bed. Ice melted. Just after 4 a.m., he gets up, stumbles into the hallway. His face is streaked by light and dark. 
great display of moral ambiguity for what might or could or should or shouldn't happen. He opens the door to Jan and Bobby's bedroom. Awkward, but we're in a cabin in the woods, and this thing could go slasher film at any moment. Fair game. They pop up afraid. He looks down at them menacingly, face caved in, then says, you beat me fair and square. And that's it. Walks out, leaving their door open. Then cut to an early morning misty lake view. Those rocks. Things are on edge now. Tony's spread out all over the bed again. Here's Bobby cleaning up outside, throwing out the trash. Carm comes in with some Advil. I hope you're proud of yourself. But always on cue. Always on time, Carmela. Like Ashanti. Says she's packed and would just like to go. T says she was right about what happened last night, but that she should have insisted. So now it's my fault. Classic on every fucking level. Outside, Bobby and Jan have breakfast ready. Jan made a frittata, and Bobby made Ramos fizzes. That's a New Orleans staple consisting of gin, citrus, and cream. Interesting contrast, Bobby's face is relatively unscathed, whereas Tony's pretty much scathed all around. Carmen T. think it's best they leave, but Jan and Bobby express their family. Don't leave because of last night. These things happen. Besides, they have that meat later with the Canucks, slang for Canadian. Another reason, it's a sin to waste food. Seconded. Bobby hands them both drinks. Hair of the dog. A colloquialism for an elixir that cures a hangover. Comes from Scotland, where there was once a belief that applying the hair of a dog that bit you to the wound would cure it. Then, the shot. Probably the number one shot that I've had looping in my head about this show over the past 20 fucking years. One of my absolute favorites across all cinema. Conjures a constellation of emotions every time. Tony sitting on the dock of a bay. Watching the clouds roll away. Otis Redding over here. The angle. The visceral nature elements. The wind, the current, the clouds, the air, the flapping shirt, his shadow, the approach. Earlier, the camera approached him from the front. Now it's approaching him from the back. Again, we're examining him for the last time. Then the close-up from the front which screams, Bobby's dead. This? Last night? After I just gave the prick a bump? We hear dock bells tolling, funeral bells tolling, 
that poem, of course, suggesting every time the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Tony looks over at the boat, the source of the tolling bell, the woody rocking against the rickety dock. He hears two bells, importantly, not three yet. A duck flaps by over his shoulder, a nice season premiere callback to the pilot, true to form. He breathes it all in, like we've seen him do before. Then some music plays in the distance. It's Bobby adjusting the radio, an old Emerson radio. I remember having one of those in our garage as a kid. But nice touch that it felt like we were in his head for a second. From this magic moment, Bobby turns to the news of the war in Iraq. As we hear more Americans killed over the past two days, we hear the bells again. There's three. Jan looks out the window, sees Tony sitting alone. The clock overhead shows us it's almost high noon. Are we making a fucking western here? The bell keeps ringing as the body count is relayed over the airwaves. Then Janice, fucking look at him out there. I've seen that sitting in the chair thing. What did she mean by that? Also, was it something she's seen her father do that usually signaled something bad was going to happen? Back on Tony, he overhears footsteps. Is Janice about to pull what she did with Richie? Look, the thought crosses your mind, is all. But it's calm. Comes to chat. A strong lead on the house fell through. Meadows home studying. Brings up pediatricians, how they're not the highest paid doctors. That's radiologists, she says. But still, what a wonderful thing to be. Carm was talking about their daughter. And what's Tony's response? That fucking throw rug hadn't have been there. Would have been Bobby on his back, not me. What? I wouldn't have slipped. I would have kicked his ass. It's a pride thing. He thinks Carmela cares. Like that night in the crowd at Pizza World when he took Dominic Tedesco. Now, there's a Cobra Kai-style soprano spinoff series for you. Dominic Tedesco, 35 years later. Whatever happened there? Says they didn't know each other, but their eyes met, and she was blown away. I was in fucking high school. I'm supposed to be turned on by you beating up your brother-in-law at your 47th birthday? Yeah, that's right. Bobby pulled that shit on his birthday of all days. T wonders how old Bobby is, 42, 43. You think those four years don't make a difference? To which all I got to say is, tell that to LeBron James or Tom Brady. Then he brings up the fact they wouldn't be living in that fucking mansion if it wasn't for him. I had to sacrifice my entire friendship with Johnny Sack to get him that house. 
How much of that is actually true? Certainly some, but there's definitely some ambiguity there. Carmela's face, I've heard it all before. Same old song and dance. Tony lets her know it's funny how everybody forgets. But she says they are grateful. You soprano siblings are emotionally blocked. That's more to do with defense mechanisms that prevent a person from feeling and processing emotions properly. Two chips off the old block. But T, who steps over that like Allen Iverson stepped over T. Lou, says he's old. Face the facts. His body will never fully recover from his trauma. This as she walks off. T's phone rings. It's Chris. Called to wish him a happy belated birthday. Seems very happy and upbeat, but cocksucker couldn't even call on the right day? T immediately hangs up between Bobby and this fucking guy. The camera doesn't even cut back to Chris to get his reaction. Talk about a regular around the margins. The short shrift is pitch perfect, and you know something's building there. Next, we're on T and his new golf clubs. He's loading them in the car. The whole purpose of this scene, to my mind, is that he overhears Nika and Mercedes singing a song about ducks. Tony stops to take that in. Note, their song ends on the words, Mother Duck. That's right, the root cause of this lake house debacle, or debacle. Cut to the four of them having lunch, cold cuts, nice throwback, mini cans of Budweiser all around, Bobby telling stories of scary catches in the lakes, snakeheads and bowfins, who gives a fuck is all Tony's face says. Brings up the tussle again. If it was a year ago, before my injury, Bobby acquiesces, everyone here knows you were at a disadvantage. But T wants to get under his skin. This is the power that he has over everybody in his orbit. He says it was a sucker punch. Bobby's fearlessness or stupidity rears its head again. So it's not fair and square? Make up your mind. He looks away, can't figure this guy out. Maybe even wishes he could have that assault rifle back. T waits a beat and says forget about it. I have. <laughs> now, equal parts funny and scary, we know he'll never forget about it. Later, Bobby's cleaning the grill, and T comes over to say they should head out for their business thing. Jan wonders where. They say they're going to play some golf with some people. Carm says just hit a few into the lake. At which point, Bobby and Jan look at each other and what their faces convey could be the last time. Love that. The bells toll again. And we cut to the Escalade ripping up the road. Just Tony and Bobby. Shades of Aid and Silvio. Bobby's tense, sweaty. T turns a hard corner down a country road when Bobby says he has to take a leak. A hundred percent shades of aid here. 
Bobby's nervous. So's the whole world watching. Great setup where nothing happens. I'm not just going to give it to you, viewer. You got to earn it. Cut back to the lake. Carm playing with Nico while Mercedes chills. What do they pay her for again? Interesting frame because Janice, like with most her kids, is absent. Until she's not. Everybody's having a great time, and out she comes. Upset that Nika's in the water despite two adults supervising. She hands him off to Mercedes to do the real parenting, then complains about her and Bobby Jr. and his fucking adolescence. All the while, we're thinking, what about yours? Says, it's nothing but lip and attitude with these kids. She's imitating. This, not realizing, she's imitating her, too. Recall, what the fuck out? Carm gives herself a shoulder massage as she half listens. First Tony, now Janice. She's sopranoed the fuck out. Jan notices, again, doesn't really apologize so much, but attributes her behavior to the estrogen pills she's taking. They both kick back in chairs along the water and laugh again at the story about her dad and the gun. The old man and the gun. That alone was worth the price of admission, Carm says. Jan says he was Napoleon to his core. Old school Naples. Then, she looks down at her watch, noticing they're not back yet. Not saying anything, just looking out over the water. Maybe connecting the dots between her dad and Tony. Two guys. Napolidan to the core. Recall, she's seen that sitting on the chair thing before. And so have we, by the way. Godfathers 1, 2, and 3. Jan passes the time by bringing up an old boyfriend who hit her once. Says she blew her lid. Completely exploded. Literally. She's talking about Richie. Says she's more like her dad than Tony. Verbalizing what I thought to be the opposite of what she was thinking in her own head. Carm asks, so what are you saying? He's more like your mother? To which I wondered, does it have to be binary though, Carm? Jan says, no, he's got a temper too. Now Carm checks her watch. Jan looks out over the water. She thinking about Bobby? She actually even care about Bobby at this point? Or is she just looking out for herself? A speedboat passes by over the water. Jan pivots back to her mother who could lay out in the weeds for days, years, waiting to strike. Which triggers Carm, who's had enough. The verbal diarrhea when you've got something in that head of yours, you give yourself away. What are you saying about my husband? Jan plays dumb. What? what I say? Carm gets defensive, kind of like she did with Roe back when T was in the hospital. I don't know what goes on in your house, but Tony has never raised his hand to his children or T. 
to me. He's not a vindictive man. If she only knew, right? Jan equally defensive. Nothing goes on in my house. The guilt. Are they going to fight too? More bells toll. Carm fesses up. Once T slapped AJ, and he felt horrible about it for days. Referring, of course, to the shot across the bow in Army of One. Then she last words the motherfucker. Bobby took advantage of him after he'd had too much to drink. There's no excuse for the way Bobby blindsided him. Carm, realizing that Jan is not as grateful about all he's done for her as she was earlier on the dock with Tony. She gets up and leaves. Kind of surprised she stayed that long, to be honest. And we're left with Jan looking out over the water, fidgeting, angling. Coming to the home stretch, cut to T and Bobby at a bar, the pharmaceuticals racket. Also a nice throwback to the pilot and the Medicare scam there. They're with the two Canucks, talking about their past successes with Lipitor, likely selling it black market. Now they're proposing Fosamax, an osteoporosis medication. Four of those, they say, sell for $70 U.S. from the pharmacy. And their proposal is to sell four pills to Tony for $10. Tony's suspect. But they're real, not counterfeit. They're from Assurance Maladie, referring to the French healthcare system, that according to the WHO at one point, was considered the best healthcare system in the world. Back on those pills, they're just expired, is all. One of the guys says, change the date. Nobody knows. T inquires about quantity. The plan is for 20000 every three months. That's a $50,000 buy with an upside of three hundred dollars or a 7x return. I know. Fucking Texas Instruments over here. Bobby tries to talk them down. The other guy apparently writes a check his body can't cash and gets chewed en français by the other guy. Alleged translation, they can't deliver early because one guy's sister got court trouble. T, with his signature finger wag, says a good lawyer makes all the difference. Wonder if his tune will change on that by the end of this episode. They continue, her old husband wants custody of their child. Bobby, separate a child from his mother? I mean, what kind of person does this? Realize, though, his own wife separated herself from her child. Tony's thinking, no doubt Livia crossing his mind a little. The principal Canadian says he would do anything to be debarras of this shit. That's rid of. Tony said that's tough talk, bon ami. Wonder if he meant to say mon ami because I can't imagine these guys are good friends. T says, drop your price to 35K and we'll see what we can do about the other thing. Yes, Tony's price on a human life in $2,007, 15K. The Canucks step aside to talk. Bobby's nervous. T gonna make me do this? 
And then, you'll take care of this, right? T, looking at his hand, knows he's got this prick pinned by the balls. He's going to make him pay for that knockout in more ways than one. Like Phil Leotardo once said, it's a start. Bobby has no other choice but to say, sure. No bow and arrows now. Cut to them driving back along the water. A jet skier keeps pace with the 5.7-liter Vortex V8. Tony honks and waves. She waves back. Weekend at Bernie's over here. Bobby's frozen, thinking about what he's got to do. Guy wants the life, the trappings, but apparently not the work that comes with it. Been riding this brother-in-law shit for too long. Tony's smug, knows it, knows how uncomfortable he is. When they pull up to the house, Jan runs out to greet Bobby for multiple reasons. Carm follows behind. How was the game? Pitch perfect. Carm and T say they're going to hit the road, beat the traffic. Jan turns to Bobby again in a private moment. You let him win. Smart. Makes you wonder how exhausting a day in the life for her can be. Fade cut to Bobby and Jan seeing T and Carm off. T thanks Jan again for the present, who tells him to look out for Aunt Gemma from the 60s, a nugget that might shine in many saints. Inside the house, Jan wants to know what happened. He break your balls about the fight? She's fishing. Remember, she's seen that sitting on a chair thing before. This isn't over. It can't be over. Not in her mind. Bobby's packing, avoiding her. Heads out. She chases after. Where are you going? He says he's got business. Be back in a couple of days. She questions that. A couple of days? The Salernos are coming over tomorrow. Who the fuck are the Salernos and where's their limited series? Bobby says, stop fucking nagging me. I'll be back as soon as I can. He gonna shoot a hole in her hair too? He's got the blueprint now. The camera hard pans to Jan, who's teeter-tottering like that Woody out on the dock. Cut to an apartment complex. Overhead shot of a courtyard. We're actually in Brooklyn, not Montreal. Just east of Fort Greene. Guys are speaking in French. When a Seattle grunge-era guy approaches with a laundry bag over his shoulder. Chris Cornell over here. Then we see Bobby off in the corner, tracking him, real sportsmanlike. He pulls out a picture, a father and his small daughter, about to be killed by a father with a small daughter of his own. He looks at the picture to verify, and we get a J-cut to tennis shoes bouncing in a dryer. The guy greets a neighbor, sets his laundry down, fast cut to a dryer, the sound. Bobby approaches, scopes the scene one more time, draws his gun. We see it through the reflection on one of the dryers. That always felt like an homage of some kind. They make brief eye contact when Bobby lets one go into his chest. It goes through his body, 
through the glass of the dryer and starts clanging in there. An incredible little detail. Could that bullet come back to haunt Bobby somehow? The guy's still alive, coughing. Bullet went right through him, and he's still alive. Bobby walks right up to him, emotional. The guy has the strength to grab his shirt, at which point Bobby's forced to put one more slug in his head. Makes a mess of the whole thing. Tore the front of his shirt off as he forced the victim's hand off it. More potential evidence? Also, I've always wondered what he said as he was dying. I made out the verb parlay, that's speak, but couldn't string it all together. Note Bobby sees the cross tattooed on his neck as he backs away, right next to a necklace with a dragon emblazoned on it. Guy kind of threw Targaryen vibes there for a second. Finally, a great shot of Bobby in a corridor, dropping the gun and exiting to sunlight. Usually the best disinfectant, but not for this. Not for what he just did. Forever altered by this moment. Cut to Tony at home on the couch, watching those home movies. No sound. Garden hoses, jump rope, inflatable pools, Cadillacs, the little things. His phone rings. Nice bookend. It's Mink. The gun charge is back on. Essex County dropped it, but it looks like the feds took it over. What happened to it's a piece of shit case, Tony wonders. Mink says it is. It's unwinnable. But folded into a RICO, it adds a predicate, which is something we delved into in a past episode. The good news, Mink says, this fucking guy, the good news, Mink says, the creepy lawyer and him shining through, if they had what they needed, we'd be having this conversation through glass. Gee fucking thanks, right? T hangs up and looks back at those movies. This fucking guy's ability to compartmentalize danger. It's incredible. In the video, we see Jan spraying him with water as he chases her up the street. Finally, back at the lake, Bobby pulls up, and this magic moment fades in. The whirring of the opening sequence as the car pulls up. Incredibly effective. Jan and the Salernos are off in the distance. Jan's glistening in the sunlight as if her husband's transformation is now complete. What am I, Darth Vader now? Nika runs to him and he embraces her and he embraces her as he looks out over the water. This episode couldn't have ended any better on that water. The Fate to Black is on the lyric, everything I want, I have whenever I hold you tight. But that hold, as we've just seen, will never be the same again. He just killed a man. An innocent man. A father. A civilian. And on top of that, he's forever compromised with his boss. And if we're really piling it on, he's got to put up with Janice. But worst of all, he's officially one step closer. 
like Tony, to the can or the other thing. And by extension, so are we. One step closer to one less magic moment with Tony. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.